Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm so pleased today to be speaking with Dr. Ruth Dalton about her fabulous book titled Living in Houses, A Personal History of English Domestic Architecture, published by Lund Humphreys in 2022. This is a really fascinating book that explores the history of houses in England through the stories of nine houses, ranging all the way from the 1600s up to the 1980s, which Ruth has in fact lived in um, as an actual person, but also obviously as an architect and academic. So through these nine houses, we in fact learn a massive amount of things about how houses were built, what they were used for, how they change over time. So Ruth, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to take us through your fascinating book. Thank you so much for inviting me today. Uh, I'm just delighted to be here. And obviously this is something I'm passionate about. So any excuse to share... Uh, share this with other people is just fantastic. Well, we're very glad to have you. Um, But before we do get into the book, could you please introduce yourself a little bit and explain why you decided to write this? Um, So as you said, my name's Ruth Dalton. I'm Professor of Architecture at the University of Northumbria in Newcastle. Um, And the reason this book came about is a little bit strange. If you can cast your mind back to early 2020, COVID had just happened. Uh, In March in the UK, we'd gone into lockdown. And I suddenly found that I was being contacted by journalists with some really fascinating questions about the effect of people's houses on their experience of lockdown. So I was getting questions like, you know, is it better to have an open plan house versus lots of little rooms that people in the in the household can escape into? Um, Is the amount of space important? Um, How important is having some outdoor space? Is it garden, no garden? How useful is a balcony? And obviously I was trying to help out and answer these questions as best I can. But what I found I was doing was I was trying to imagine what my experience of lockdown would be in a house other than the house I'm currently living in. And of course, the houses that you can most easily make reference to are other houses you've lived in. So when journalists were asking me about, you know, small studio flats, I was imagining myself back in a small studio bed fit, bed sit that I'd lived in as a student. And I suddenly, suddenly I had this, it was almost like this sort of um, bolt of lightning. And I suddenly thought, wow, I have lived in such an amazing array of different kinds of houses. And then, of course, being an academic, I immediately opened up a spreadsheet and I started filling things into a spreadsheet. And most of these spreadsheets, there is a sort of residual echo of them in the introduction to the book. But I started making spreadsheets and beginning to to make lists of every house I'd lived in, what the date was, was it open plan, how many rooms, did it have access to open space? And I suddenly thought, there's something really interesting here. There's possibly a book in here. 
And, um, and then I contacted my editor, who had been the editor at Lunt Humphreys for a previous book that I'd written on visitor centres. And I just kind of pitched it to her and I said, do you think there's something in this? And the rest, as they say, is history. I love that this started with, hang on, I've got an idea. I need to make a spreadsheet. Um, I think that a lot of academics listening to this are like, yes, yes, that is how all projects start. Um, so I'm not surprised this one did as well. Um, interestingly, you organised the book chronologically in terms of when the houses were built rather than the order in which you lived in them um, over your life, which from a historical perspective, I think makes a lot of sense. And it seems quite convenient um, because you talk about a house being built in 1651 is a particularly good place to start a history of English housing. And you happen to have one of those um, in your own background. Why is this such a good starting point? Um, so this this concept called the Great Rebuilding, which is just a wonderful term, and it was first coined by um, a historian called Hoskins. And so he came up with this idea, and it was basically to describe this wave of house building that seems to have taken place between the late 16th and the late 17th century. So what's interesting is if you look at the housing stock of the UK, there's actually very, very few medieval houses in existence. I mean, there's a few. They tend to be the houses of particularly wealthy um, merchants, for example. But in terms of the houses of ordinary communal garden people, um, almost no medieval houses now exist. So most of the houses that we see seem to be dating from this period, late 16th to late 17th century. And so this is what um, got Hoskins really fascinated about why we suddenly go from having very few medieval houses and then suddenly, relatively speaking, suddenly a lot more in, in this period, the late 16th and late 17th century. So just to point out, the first house in the book, which is called Yana Cottage, which is the childhood home that I grew up in. This was actually built in 1651. So this is exactly at the end of this period of great rebuilding. So it's actually a really good place to, to start any history of English housing. Um, and the great rebuilding is slightly disputed now. Other historians have come since and they've said, it, you know, it's maybe not as clear cut as Hoskins suggested and that it's probably far more nuanced. There's more regional variation. Maybe it's less strictly um, temporally bounded than Hoskins first assumed. But what Hoskins was essentially saying was that the cause of the great rebuilding was actually all about the labour market um, in England um, at um, this period, the late 16th century. And he basically said there was something really significant that happened in the 1540s. And essentially, anyone who was working on the land, and that was most people at the time, suddenly had this new security of tenure um, in which their housing rents were not only fixed, but they were pegged to the prices of agricultural products. And these have been rising steadily. And so Hoskins said something along the lines of um, no yeoman with his wits about him could fail to accumulate money savings on a scale hitherto unknown. So essentially, we went from this period of sort of rent insecurity to rent security, which meant that there was this widespread disposable household income that just hadn't been there before. 
And what people did was they invested their household income into more durable um, house building. So they rebuilt um, older houses, they used much more durable building materials. So they started to build with stone and brick. They started to use tiled roofs, not thatch roofs. I mean, medieval houses were astonishingly flammable. This is another reason why there's very few of them now. And so, um, you know, th- this was, uh, and obviously the fact that more durable building materials were used have meant that they have lasted. Which is, again, many, many reasons there of why it's a great place to start. Um, So thank you for giving us that introduction. Picking up on what you talked about sort of at the end of that, um, in terms of building materials, what do you think today's architects maybe can learn from these rural vernacular cottages? Mm -hmm. So Yana Cottage, as I said, was my childhood cottage. And I spent quite some time looking at the materiality of it and how it would have been built originally. So originally it would have been uh, the walls, the first set of walls were probably wattle and daub. So wattle was, uh, if you imagine a sort of um, woven um, hazel hurdle um, that then gets um, uh, daub was essentially um, um building earth with um, and clay, sometimes mixed with dung. Um, you'd often have um, some maybe some aggregates such as sand or crushed stone inserted in there. That was to stop mice, by the way, um, chewing through the wall. Um, and often reinforced with natural fibres such as uh, straw or um, even hair, horse hair or hay. Um, so um, and this was then pressed into the wattle frame. So you had wattle and daub walls, uh, a timber frame, and the original roof of Yana Cottage would have been thatch before it was ultimately replaced by uh, tiles. So what was really interesting about this set of building materials is that it was, for a start, incredibly sustainable. I mean, it was all things that had been locally grown, for example, the straw and the thatch. Um, and um, in terms of the, uh, later on, the building was actually skinned in a local brick, and I spent quite some time tracing how far the bricks had moved from where the clay had been quarried to the site of the house, and essentially it was about a mile. So I don't know if you've ever heard of the concept of food miles, and this is the idea of the distance between something being grown or um slaughtered and then the distance it takes to arrive on your plate well there's a similar concept in architecture which is how far do building materials travel from uh, the their location of origin to the building site so yana cottage was amazing because everything that was used to build that house probably only traveled less than a mile to actually get there and this is very much now with the focus on sustainability Um, and the sustainability building materials that we're trying to actually get back to. And what's really interesting is there's almost been a rediscovery of some of these former building materials. So Yana Cottage was timber frame, and the very last house in this book, um, Elm Village, was actually a new timber frame-based housing estate built in the 1980s. So timber is currently the sort of the new building material. Um, But even things like um, straw and thatch. So, for example, one of the um, other houses I mentioned in this book was 
um, a very famous house called the Straw Bale House, which was built in London about 20 years ago um, by Sarah Wigglesworth and Jeremy Till. And this was one of the first sort of modern houses to use straw again. I think the Architects Journal called it the most influential house in a generation. So with much more of a focus because of the climate crisis, much more of a focus on the sustainability of building materials and the distance from um, that building materials have to travel to site. I think there's a lot of looking back at some of these vernacular methods and traditions and rediscovering them and reinventing them for the, the modern world. No, absolutely. That's a fabulous kind of example to demonstrate. So thank you for taking us through that. Um, with the cottage, obviously, there's some amount of kind of straightforwardness in figuring out uh, when it was built, what it was used for, how it was laid out. Um, though, of course, the book goes into detail about all of those things for each of the houses. We're sort of glossing over some of the intricacies in our discussion. But some of the houses you talk about, um, it's much harder to figure out these sort of kind of basic biographical facts, I suppose, of the house. Why might it be hard to do? And when it is, how do you figure it out? Yeah, I mean, it really can be so tricky. Um, and the older a house is, obviously, I mean, this sounds, I'm maybe saying something very obvious here, but the older a house is, the more tricky it can be to figure out when it was actually built. And that's because they often undergo many, many changes over the years. Um, you know, rooms get knocked through to create bigger rooms. Um, new walls can get added, so rooms get subdivided. Yana Cottage is a great example of this because originally it was two cottages that were combined into one. And this not only meant knocking, um, creating um, access between the two cottages, but also the removal of one of the internal staircases. And if my mother hadn't actually recalled where the former staircase was, I'd have been really hard pushed to know. So her memory of um, because it was actually the house my mother grew up in as well. So her childhood memory was invaluable in this case for me trying to reconstruct how it had been. And then, of course, materials change. So I'm, again, I mentioned with Yana Cottage, uh, thatch roofs get removed and tiled over. Um, again, in the case of Yana Cottage, the Wattland Daub Wall ultimately received an outer skin of brick sometime later. Um, and then from an interior point of view, period features become removed when they're thought to be unfashionable, only for a next generation to come along and then try and reinstate them again, because it's suddenly been, become fashionable to have period features again. So, you know, you get a huge amount of sort of flux and change in the, the life of a house. Um, so, I mean, I use lots of techniques to try and uh, figure out when things had been built. By the way, in Yana Cottage, um, I had no idea growing up how old it was, but the person who moved into it subsequent to us, so the next owner after us, um, stripped back some beams that had been papered over and it very handily had 1651 written on the beam. So in the end, that one uh, proved to be quite easy. But um, in order to uncover the construction year of your property, definitely start investigating the property's title, any deeds or registers, 
Um, other sources of information can include um, you know, local authority records, um, even speaking to neighbours or past owners, you know, who might actually offer some insights into the history. I also found Ancestry.com quite useful, looking at things um, for the cases where houses had been something other than a house. So, for example, Yana Cottage had been a blacksmith's forge as well. I was able to find records about the blacksmith in the village. So, um, so lots of, and, and it's, it really is like um, putting together a jigsaw puzzle. No, absolutely. That's very much what that sounds like. Um, moving to another one of the houses you discuss in the book, uh, I mean, this one was fascinating because of kind of the complexity and the puzzle piece of it, but also sort of for what I think it might be relevant to in today, thinking about kind of what do we do with buildings that might have been built for one purpose, but now we need to do something else with them. So you have a particular house that you call, quote, an exemplar of how to convert a historic vernacular non-domestic building into a house. Why is it so great? Um, so this was a house, uh, it's currently just around the corner from where I'm currently living. So it's uh, called Priest, it's on a street called Priest Popple um, in the uh, town of Hexham. And this was one I really couldn't accurately date. Um, it's probably around 1700. And it almost certainly was not built as a house. And the closest use that we can find is that it was most likely to be a brewery. So here we have um, a vernacular non-domestic uh, non-domestic building that subsequently became um, a house. And what was interesting actually about the history of this is it had been everything over the, the years. It was almost like a kind of slice through the domestic history of the town and it had been uh, everything and anything over the years. And it was converted by the owner prior to us. Um, and I think what for me really stood out about the conversion he did was that he really strived to make sure that the newer parts of the conversion worked in harmony with the existing building. And he took pains to emphasize its unique qualities and to highlight its quirkiness. So for example, one of the decisions he took when um, he undertook the conversion was not concealing the interior stonework behind, for example, an, a nice brand new stud work and plasterboard wall, which I think many people would have done. But he decided to leave it fully exposed. He painted it with a lime wash finish, um, which sort of accentuated its natural irregular surface and, and really kind of helped retain the vernacular and industrial character of the building that might have otherwise been lost. But I think the other thing as well, and this is... Um, you know, maybe the final part of this story was that he really took time to educate himself about the care of an older building. So again, going back to the stonework, um, he understood how important it was for stonework in an old house to breathe. And therefore, all of his conversion was working with the former building materials and not simply trying to impose a, a modern um, aesthetic onto something much older. No, a very important and relevant lesson um, and just a fascinating kind of project and house to think about. Continuing, though, our lightning tour of the book, can we move, please, to uh, a London house, a Georgian house, 
um, which we don't necessarily think of as being particularly related to, you know, often Georgian is sort of seen in its own time period. And you have this fascinating uh, discussion and analysis that, in fact, there's some elements of Georgian architecture that we can understand as relating to the Great Fire of London, which I don't necessarily think of in the same sentence. So can you please um, educate us, update us? Yeah, oh, this is another great question. So this house in particular, by the way, was my student house when I first arrived to start studying architecture at um, University College London. And I now look back and I think, wow, what a privilege. I mean, I was on this amazing Georgian house in Gower Street. And of course, as an 18 year old student, you don't pay any attention to it at all. Um, so what I what I discovered that was really fascinating about the characteristics characteristic features of Georgian architecture is actually how many of them actually can be traced back to regulations that arose in the aftermath of the Great Fire of London. And in particular, there's three of these um, that we very much associate with kind of classic Georgian facades. And in fact, they were all intended originally as measures for reducing fire spread. So the three are uh, recessed windows, uh, parapet roofs. So the parapet roof is essentially where you get um, um, a uh, the wall of the facade continues up to make, if you like, a little wall in front of the roof so that if you're standing on the street, um, the roof itself is very much de-emphasized. You don't notice as, it as much because the, the wall continues up. Um, and then also cornices. Uh, so cornices um, basically have a, a fairly utilitarian purpose because one of the things they do is direct rainwater away from the sides of the building. But um, in the Georgian period, they quickly became quite a decorative element as well. Um, so all of these building features were intended to ensure that there was no exposed timber on the facade of the building. So it all comes back to exposed timber, um, the facade of the building, and obviously reducing fire spread. So the wooden eaves, that's the um, end of the roof, become hidden behind the parapet and the cornice. Um, and then the only one, the wooden window frames, were the only part of the wooden facade that they really couldn't hide entirely. So what they did with these was they recessed them back as far as possible. So rather than being in line with the front of the facade, they sort of get pushed uh, quite far back and this began to give us the very distinctive character of um, Georgian architecture where the windows almost seem like these sort of holes punched through the facade as opposed to the earlier buildings where they're much more in line with the facade. As as you said right those are iconic features of this architecture and yet had no idea it had anything to do with the Great Fire of London. So what a fascinating thing to uh, discover and discuss. Moving, however, to our next house, um, I couldn't pick a favourite. I don't know. I don't know if you could, um, but it's, there's just too much to get into. Anyway, I'm restraining myself and just asking a few. Um, if we think about one of the other houses in the book, what do we mean by the term villa? It pops up all over the place. We still have it today. Where does that come from? What influence has it had on the history of English domestic architecture? Yeah, that, that's a, a really good question. By the way, the villa in the book is where I'm sitting at the moment. So I'm sitting in the villa. Um, so the word villa clearly sounds Italian. 
Uh, and indeed, it was originally the Italian word for very simply a country house or a farm. Um, but architecturally, as you say, it crops up all the time. And it's a word that has a very specific set of meanings and connotations. Um, there was a great book that I looked at um, when I was writing my book, and it was by uh, Dana Arnold, and it was her book on the Georgian Villa. And she essentially says that it still remains one of the most potent architectural forms in Western culture. Um, so essentially, villas can be thought of as having a, coming in four waves, if you like. So the very first villas, the original villas, these were essentially just Roman country houses on the edge of the city. And this was where if you were a wealthy upper class Roman citizen, you would flee to escape the heat of the city during the summer months. Um, but then the Renaissance happened and Renaissance architects became very inspired by these Roman villas on the edge of the city and they attempted to recreate them. And the most famous of these who everyone will have heard of is uh, Palladio and he was particularly famous for his villas. So this was the Renaissance. And then, of course, the Renaissance gets rediscovered again in the 18th and 19th century. So we have Georgian Regency architects through to Victorian architects who rediscover this idea of the villa. And um, what's interesting about the and then the final wave um, I would argue we're kind of still in the middle of at the moment. Um, but what's really interesting about the first, second and third waves is that they were very much designed for aristocracy or upper classes and what we might now term a, a bolt hole, so somewhere located outside, but close enough to the city that you could you know, maybe just go for a weekend, um, so without maybe more than an hour's travel. Um, and they were essentially designed primarily for pleasure and were not necessarily large. Um, so again, there's another book on uh, the villa by someone called Charles Middleton, and he states three characteristics of the villa, and these were elegance, compactness, and convenience. So they weren't meant to be um, large grand country estates. Um, they were, um, as I said, convenient, often quite compact. Um, they often, you know, maybe a little bit showy. It was somewhere that you maybe brought friends to over the weekend. Um, and they very much sort of delighted in their rural setting. Um, then what happened in the Georgian period was instead of villas becoming the, the second or third house for only the wealthiest of society, they began to be built primarily as the homes of the upper middle classes. Um, so, for example, the first villa suburb was built in St. John's Wood in London in the 1820s. So this was very much began this shift of the idea of the villa being this um, gracious, detached house standing in its own little bit of uh, land and often just on the outskirts of town. And if you sort of think of any suburb now, and this is why I say we're almost still in the middle of this fourth wave of villa building. And again, you think of any sort of, you know, large leafy suburb, uh, perhaps built after the Second World War, the idea of this sort of large detached house standing in its own little bit of land on the outskirts of town. That's pretty much the description of any suburb now. And so you can see this wonderful progression from, you know, these 
Roman um, noblemen, um, you know, having their bolt hole on the edge of the city through to today's, you know, uh, box standard suburbs. And it's just this wonderful little story that connects them all. Absolutely. Um, thank you for taking us through it. I think we'll all look at suburbs a bit differently um, next time we see them. Thinking then about um, three other living spaces discussed in the book, you talk about them each individually in their own chapter, as you do with all the houses, but also trace very much an arc connecting them, um, helping us understand almost a, a sub-history within the kind of broader picture of the history of English domestic architecture, looking at the evolution of social domestic architecture through these three places. Can you help us understand how these three show that evolution and arc? I mean, this was a really fun part of writing this book, because as you say, it's almost a story within the story. And these are the last three chapters in the book. So the first one is Haberdasher Street. The next one is the Gloucester Grove Estate. And the third one is Elm Village. So they're all housing estates uh, in London. So Haberdasher Street is very much the story of um, the modern, uh, sorry, the model dwelling movement. And this pretty much lasts from the mid-19th century up to the First World War. So it's mostly Victorian. And it was this tradition of sort of philanthropic housing. So private individuals or companies providing housing for the deserving poor. And there's a wonderful um, royal connection here because one of the first examples of a modern dwelling house was actually um, designed with Prince Albert. He was very um, concerned, as, as many eminent Victorian men were, about the condition of poor people in London. And it's estimated that about 40,000 modern uh, model dwellings were built by 1910. So never built in huge quantity, but it was certainly enough to demonstrate the idea that affordable, good quality housing could be built both efficiently and even profitably and therefore effectively paved the way for the later construction of council housing. Um, so we sort of move on from the Victorian model dwellings through to the rise of council housing. And you can see the period of council housing broadly lasting from a post-World War II through to about the 1970s. And if you think about uh, certainly England after um, World War II, there was very much this idea of a sort of social contract after the Second World War. Um, and obviously it came in line with other things like um, the National Health Service as well. And um, so council housing um, very much uh, rose, peaked and then fell during this period. And there's another great book that I must give a plug to. And this is John Broughton's um, book called Municipal Dreams, The Rise and Fall of Council Housing. And the Gloucester Grove Estate, which is the the penultimate chapter in the book, was built very much at the peak of this council housing phase. And um, I mean, it's, it's a very fascinating example because all the um, preconceptions we have about a problem housing estate are exemplified in the Gloucester Grove estate. Um, but then continuing the story, um, the Thatcher government brought in the right to buy um, through the Housing Act of 1980. So this was an act of parliament 
passed in the UK that essentially gave five million council tenants in England and Wales the right to buy their house from the local authority. And what's significant about these was these houses were not replaced. And therefore, what came to fill the void was the rise of the modern housing association. And in many respects, this was a little bit like returning to the public-private philanthropic housing of the Victorian era. And this was very much exemplified in Elm Village, which was built in 1984, so just four years after the right to buy Um, after the Housing Act allowed people to buy their own council homes. So again, these three chapters, actually just as a sort of self-contained set, are a beautiful example of this story of um, social housing through the model dwelling movement, then the peak of council house building, and then the modern housing associations that are essentially what have replaced that. No, absolutely. Um, And again, speaks to, I think, both levels of the book, kind of histories of individual places, as well as what this tells us more broadly. In each chapter, uh, each for a specific place, you end the chapter sort of thinking about what you learn from this as an architect. Um, And I was particularly struck by at the end um, of one of these social housing focused chapters, you say that um, every architecture student should spend some time living in social housing. Why do you think this is and what impact do you think it would have? I mean, I was really struck by um, the design of the Gloucester Grove Estate and what it was that the architects clearly aspired to um, put into the estate. So you, you look at the additional facilities that they tried to put in and, you know, sort of... Um, Oh, uh, nurseries, um, gardens for older people, um, community halls. I mean, the list of additional facilities, they clearly were not just building houses. They were clearly trying to build a community. And yet the reality of it, um, it actually became one of the most notorious sink estates. And I became quite struck by the gulf between what was clearly the reality imagined by the architects who were designing it Um, or or, or the thought that the architects had and the reality of it when it was built and just how their lofty goals really felt short of reality. And, And I really thought that if they'd actually spent some time experiencing some other states directly and actually spending some time on some of these social housing estates before they actually built the Gloucester Grove estate, then maybe they might have actually done things differently. And, um, and this was actually echoed in um, another book um, uh, called Estates. Um, and I've just forgotten the name of the person, Lindsay um, something, apologies. Um, And she basically talks about taking the architects of her estate on a walk around the estate and just how surprised they were about the reality of it. So I think there's something about just trying to connect um, the abstract idea of one of these estates with the reality of it. And the only way that you can connect these two is really by spending some time in one of these places. And I think what had really struck me about the time I spent on the Gloucester Grove estate is that I actually hadn't quite realised what a poor reputation it had. Um, And possibly had I known that, I wouldn't have spent time there. Um, You have to read the book to, to, to read some of the things that were said about this estate. But actually, the reality of it was not like that for me. 
And um, so I think there really is something to be said for finding things out for yourself, experiencing things for yourself and talking to people, talking to residents, talking to people who live there. And you can't do that if you're just going to sit at a computer. No, fair enough. Um, I'm glad that we sort of discussed that particular one. And just to highlight again that each of the houses has sort of reflections for architecture practice, which I think was a really interesting way to finish the chapter. And again, kind of provides a different lens on these histories. Um, I'd love to stay in this kind of section of the book for just another moment, if we may, and ask you a bit more about Elm Village. To what extent was this radical and to what extent is it still today Mm -hmm. so so this was this is the last chapter in the book and this is um a house that was built in 1984 so this was the housing association estate that was built just after the the right to buy came out and it was actually really radical in three ways um Partly the social mix, so part of the intention behind the scheme was very deliberately to create this wide social mix. So it was mixed tenure. Some of them were um, sold at cost. That was about 31%. Um, Just over half of them were in a shared ownership arrangement. Um, And then um, I think 17% were available for fair rent. And particularly back then in the 1980s, shared ownership was incredibly unusual. Um, But the other thing that they actually did was um, what I call tenure-blind design policy. So even though there was this mix of tenure, you couldn't tell if you were walking around it, which had been sold, um, effectively privately sold at cost, which were available for fair rent and which were shared ownership. So they were all mixed up. And this is... um, And there was this deliberately designed variety of houses. And it also had incredibly high quality landscaping, which was unusual for something that was essentially a housing association estate. So there was a lot of care that actually went into the the design of it, um, that it shouldn't actually have any sort of stigma of being um, an estate, if you like. Um, And then the the third thing that was actually quite radical was its construction. So it was actually the first timber-structured, large-scale housing estate to have been built in the UK. And what I found really interesting when I was starting to research this chapter was, um, I I said earlier on, timber construction is starting to come back again. And... um, and I actually started to read references saying that, you know, things like um, modern timber frame panels and off-site prefabrication, you know, started in the year 2000. It's like, no, no, it didn't. This was actually built in 1984 and it consisted of a primary wooden structure made of uh, rectangular timber frame panels, which were manufactured off-site and then brought to the site prefabricated. And this is something that is only really becoming mainstream since sort of 2000 now. So it was quite astonishing, actually, that this um, was actually going on in 1984. I love it when we see things where it's like, oh, that's a nice house. And then it's like, hang on a second. There's a whole lot of else going on there. Um, Any sort of book that takes something we probably don't notice and then reveals it, you know, perks at it, I think is absolutely fascinating. So if we take kind of all of these stories where you've done that for now, multiple houses exploring all of this history, what do you think are some of the key lessons you've learnt from living in these houses? 
I mean, I think what I've learned is actually that there is always something to learn. And it doesn't matter how experienced, um, you know, an architect in my case you are. Um, but I think that I've grown as an architect through each house. So, it, you know, each house has its individual uh, needs and wants. You need to maintain it. You need to understand it. And through doing that, you learn something. And I therefore think that I grew as an architect through my experience of living in each of these houses. And that kind of brings you back to what I was saying about the Gloucester Grove Estate and the importance of direct experience. And I think this is crucial. And I think it's probably something that when we educate young architects, we just don't stress this enough, how important direct experience is on your subsequent practice. Mm, no, that's a really key point. Um, before I ask you kind of what you've been working on or what you are working on since this book has been finished, is there anything else, any other stories you'd like to share from the book? No, I mean, I, you've asked such good questions. <laughs> um, so I think all the things I, I would have, I mean, it's such a whistle top uh, uh, journey through the mm. book. Um, but no, I think you've asked me some really good questions. Well, then I'll just remind the readers um, that there's loads more in the book itself, loads more detail about all of these things. Um, so if you're intrigued, please do check it out. Um, that leaves me just with my final question. Um, the book came out in 2022. Is there anything you've been working on since then or currently working on, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to share briefly with the audience? Yes. So the next book, rather fittingly, is called Future Home. Um, trends, innovations and disruptors in housing design. And essentially it's taking a 10-year horizon scan over the future of housing design. So trying to predict what are going to be the next big trends um, in housing design. And this one's actually an edited book um, and I've been editing it along with an academic called uh, Dr. Alejandro Morena Rangel who is at the University of Strathclyde, and it's to be published by Routledge, and it should come out um, early next year, so early 2024. Exciting. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and while, of course, we wait for that next book, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, titled Living in Houses, A Personal History of English Domestic Architecture, published by Lund Humphreys in 2022. Ruth, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. No, thank you again for inviting me. It's just been such a pleasure. I mean, you, you write these things because you're passionate about it. And you sometimes wonder whether anyone else will find it interesting at all. So it's, it's just lovely to be able to, to talk about it. So.